Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. After you listen to this episode, please make sure to like, subscribe, rate it, and share. I see that so many of you are listening to the Daily Affirmations episodes, and I hope they continue to be tools that you can use for support, encouragement, and strengthening your daily meditation practice. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at Love Letters and Mixtapes. I want to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this podcast. Snake River Roasting Company is an organic coffee roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And not only do they roast award-winning coffees, but their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. I start every single morning with a cup of their Fire on the Mountain organic coffee blend. And if you're anything like me and you're particular about what you eat and drink and how it's sourced, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee a taste. Head to their website, snakeriverroastingco.com, and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week, I wanted to talk about conflict resolution. And in the past, in work settings or retreats or workshops that I've led, whenever I begin talking about conflict resolution, I am almost immediately interrupted by someone, usually a man, (laughs) who will demand to know if I practice NVC or I've been trained in nonviolent communication as written about and taught by Marshall Rosenberg. And it's amazing because they usually ask this in the most aggressive and verbally violent way possible. And the irony of all that is not lost on me. Um, So this episode is actually not about breaking down one particular book or method or theory. Um, It's actually just about weaving together some of the practices that work in my own life, that I've seen work in other people's lives, and sharing that with you. And I'll definitely get back to NVC later on in the episode and talk a little bit about it. But for now, I actually wanted to open this episode with a short story written by Terry Dobson that offers insight into conflict resolution that may challenge how we have been programmed to think about it. Now, this story had a major impact on me, and it's pretty much the antithesis of how I was raised to navigate conflict, and probably how I'm sure many of you were taught to navigate conflict as well. And that's why I felt it was really important to sort of set the tone and open the episode with it. So here goes. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborers' clothing, 
and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that she was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole at the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. Trouble was, my martial arts skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself, getting on my feet. People are in danger, and if I don't do something fast, they will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take him apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something and he suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman sitting there, immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important and most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in easy vernacular, beckoning the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. 
I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and we take it out into the garden and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from these ice storms we had last winter. Our tree had done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It's gratifying to watch when we take our sake and we go out to enjoy the evening, you know, even when it rains. And he looked up at the laborer, his eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons too. And his voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I am so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks and a spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in well-scrubbed, youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically, my, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament, indeed. Sit down here. Tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit, and it would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. That story is so powerful, and what a way to open an episode. <laughs> Um, again, if you're hoping to hear something like light and happy, you know, welcome to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I don't really talk about that stuff. But um, here we are talking about conflict resolution. And I felt that that story was a really necessary step in creating a foundation for this dialogue. Because I think back to the first time I heard that story. And I remember how my mind immediately went to my negativity bias and my story of my own hyper-vigilant need for self-protection and how this story sounds good in theory and it was probably made up, but it could never really apply to any real-life situation. Or that if it could apply to a situation, what would happen to someone the one time out of a hundred that it didn't work the way that it did in the story? And that kind of thinking brings me back to something I mentioned in episode two, where I talked about emotional sobriety and how doing the inner work to come to terms with our character defects or 
identify new boundaries, or develop new coping methods can lead us back to ourselves. And I know that it initially sounds as if we're creating a new persona when we do this work, or we're taking on the personality of some other person who's higher or better than us. But what if in actuality, we're doing this work and we're just shedding all of these layers that we've accumulated as we walk through life and just things that attach to us as we navigate our little hurts and transgressions and, you know, this gathering of wounds that we do in life. Maybe doing this work is just returning to the core of who we are and gives us some breathing room to be that person without consequences and in moments of crisis. I don't know. Maybe not. I could totally be wrong about that. But it seems that way to me in my own journey, even when I'm trying to tell myself that it isn't. And if it aligns for me, then maybe it will align for you as well. And reading that Terry Dobson story always reminds me of one of my own stories that was actually quite similar. And when I lived in LA, one of my coworkers begged me to interview a woman that she knew for a certain position that I was hiring for. And I initially said no because she didn't have a single qualification that I was looking for. But I eventually acquiesced and set up the interview as a kindness. And this woman showed up drunk. And right off the bat, she began yelling at me in the interview. And it was like walking into a bar in like the old timey wild west. Like she just walked through the door of my office with her guns blazing. And she went in on me like very quickly. She told me that she hated my face, that I was irritating, that I had dead eyes and no soul. And that if I was smart, I would hire her to be my boss because she could really help me grow as a person. I mean, it was wild. <laughs> I mean, it was so much worse than that, but that's just sort of my summary of it. And I remember sitting there in my office and looking at this woman as she's basically attacking me and ripping me to pieces. And I kept thinking about that Terry Dobson story. And I thought, you know, I could, I could eviscerate this woman in like two seconds. But I don't want to do that because it seems like she's in a lot of pain. And I didn't want to fight her or push back at all. And the funny part is I kind of agreed with her. Everything she said wasn't that foreign to me. I was like, I do kind of have an annoying face. I have no emotion. <laughs> like I'm now in my 40s and I have no wrinkles because I am completely expressionless. So I wasn't fighting her. You know, I was just kind of agreeing with her in my head and being like, well, you know, everything she's saying about my face and my energy maybe she's right. Maybe this is how everyone sees me. Like I didn't have to take it personally. I was just kind of like shrugging internally like, eh, all right, you know. Um, and I'm pretty sure she was hallucinating. You know, I mean, there's she was very far gone. And at one point I just thanked her for her candor and told her that everyone probably feels that way about me and she just felt comfortable enough to say it out loud. And that while it probably wasn't the best way to secure a job working for me, that I wasn't personally offended. And she immediately melted. She was like a kitten. At, you know, the walls totally came down. She was practically in my arms. And instead of throwing her out of my office, I actually cleared my schedule. 
I made her coffee. I sat with her for three hours while she sobered up and we just talked. And I paid for an Uber to take her home. And it didn't have to turn into World War III. Because as annoying as I'm sure my face actually is, (laughs) I didn't attach myself to the story of what was happening between us. Um, I chose to step back from the situation and view this person as a sick person. Because I am also a sick person sometimes. And when I search for compassion instead of vengeance, I find a whole new set of tools with which to navigate the world and all of its messy people. And I can only hope that someone else would do the same for me. And like most things that will drastically change our lives, it's pretty simple, but it's not easy. And it's funny to process all of these stories as I'm recording this episode because that workplace in LA was just a hotbed of dysfunction and yet an amazing source of future anecdotes. So I can appreciate it now. But as soon as I began working there, I noticed a kind of like quirk among the staff and it's that they were all very volatile. Like there were yellers and I'd never worked in a place where people felt so comfortable walking into a room yelling or accusing or interrupting meetings. I would be in a crisis counseling session with a hospice patient and one of my coworkers would just throw open my door and like immediately begin screaming at me. It was it was strange. Um but I was more fascinated than angry. And that fascination soon wore thin because even after a few months it reached an unbearable pitch. And I spoke about it with a colleague who I've actually mentioned in this podcast in previous episodes, Ed, the Qigong master, and he was really helpful in unpacking the situation. And he offered me a perspective I really hadn't considered. He pointed out that I'm a very calm person, like I'm a borderline expressionless person, (laughs) and I have a pretty grounded energy. And he said that when people look at me, that even when he looked at me, he felt as if he was looking into a mirror and that it amplified any emotion that he or they were currently feeling because no matter what they said or did or he said or did, my face never changed, my energy never shifted. I was very just rooted in myself. And he told me, in a way, you're kind of invisible and that's part of the problem. So we need to make you separate and visible. And then he told me, to put a big mirror on the wall behind my desk so that when people spoke to me, they would be forced to see themselves and moderate their own behavior without being distracted by their projection onto me. And I was so embarrassed to put a mirror in my office. I mean, I was running the place as the director of this space and I was doing a lot of crisis counseling and I'm not supposed to have a mirror behind my desk, but I did it. And the change was drastic and immediate. People were stopped in their tracks when they saw their distorted faces in the mirror. And they would immediately lower their voice, compose themselves, change their posture. (laughs) Because having to look into an actual mirror and see what we actually look like is often so different than the version of ourselves that we create in our minds. 
Now, it's easy to hear that story that I just shared and simply point fingers at the other people and go, look at them, look at how they're behaving, and this is what they have to do to change their behavior, um, and just really making them the transgressor, almost like a very one-sided situation. And I'm sure that's a position that we all often take when we see something we don't like. We immediately want to distance ourselves from it. But what if we chose to do the exact opposite instead and drop into it instead of running away from it? By that I mean leaning into those feelings of discomfort and asking ourselves the difficult questions, such as, am I even 1% of this thing that I don't like? When do I behave that way and when do I make excuses for myself? How do I justify crossing boundaries and what rationalizations do I use? And what measures am I taking to self-evaluate what I bring into situations? And I bring that up because the concept of taking a personal inventory to keep our side of the street clean is life-changing. And it's pretty much the cornerstone of all 12-step programs, everything from Al-Anon to AA to Sex Addicts Anonymous. And one of the big reasons that I've personally seen people struggle in these programs is because there's a demand for rigorous honesty throughout the entirety of our lives, even and especially when we don't feel like it, like when we're convinced it's the other person. And we never get to step away from it or say, you know, it's a Saturday, so I can get back on my bullshit and I'll be back on track tomorrow. This type of accountability work is constantly inviting us to get really clear and honest and humble about what our part is in the situation. It's basically the antithesis of everything we've been taught in every other scenario of our lives. And in any 12-step program, we have three basic areas of inventory. We have a resentment inventory, a fear inventory, and a sex inventory. And when we do these inventories to recognize our patterns, our character defects, and areas where we can take an alternative action, that applies to conflict resolution. Because the majority of our conflicts do involve us. We're co-creating these situations. And not all, of course, I feel like I have to put a disclaimer here, there are always outliers, but outliers cannot dictate a rule of thumb. And that's obviously not what I'm referring to. If there is, you know, a ridiculously out of control act of violence, that's not what I'm discussing. I'm talking about our, our daily interactions with other people where we're very quick to point fingers and shirk responsibility. So I'm speaking to the patterns of our involvements and the repeated disappointing outcomes, not one-time acute situations. A simple version of doing one of these inventories can go like this. You take a piece of paper and you break it up into five separate columns. In the first column, we write, whom did I hurt? And you just list them. And in the second column, we write, how did I hurt them? In the third column, we write, what did I unjustifiably arouse in them? And examples can be jealousy, suspicion, resentment, anger, bitterness, anything we can think of. In the fourth column, we write, where was I at fault? Where was I selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Maybe how did I step on someone else's toes? And in the final column, we write, 
what could we have done instead? Now, this is not a miracle cure, just writing this out, but the power of an exercise like this one is that it does get us out of our own story. And then we begin to develop the muscle memory of getting out of our story, saying, this person's always at fault, it's not me. You know, we get to write a new story where we are co-creating experiences with other people. Because we all have that story where we're either the victim or the hero or everyone else is at fault. And this exercise invites us to get out of the habit of pointing fingers and taking everyone else's inventory. And instead, it asks that we focus on ourselves, our intentions, our actions, our energy, and take responsibility for what we can change and for what we seem to be unwilling to change. Another way to do a personal inventory is to explore our own histories. And I'm a big fan of doing this. Um, I'm sure some of you listening now were doing the daily journal prompts I used to post every day. And we went deep into our programming and childhood in those prompts. And part of me thinks I should bring them back, and I might. But um, for this type of exercise, good questions to ask are, where was the conflict in my childhood, my teenage years, or my young adulthood? How did my body physically react to it? So that might take a moment for you to kind of go back in and, and move through those experiences and say, like, how did I respond? What was the visceral reaction? Who modeled conflict resolution for me? And who modeled dominance or manipulation? How was peace celebrated in my home? How was failure or loss processed in my home? And I think it's always helpful to kind of drop into our own history and check in with these stories and make the unconscious conscious so that we can finally learn from it. When I opened this episode, I was talking about nonviolent communication or NVC as written about and taught by Marshall Rosenberg. And the reason I brought it up is because when I talk about conflict resolution, I actually usually mention three different books because they all have a very different approach. And I'm sure on some level it's all same, same, but different. But Nonviolent communication is a theory, a practice, a book, and a center that is focused on helping people peacefully and effectively resolve conflicts in personal, organizational, and political settings. And it emphasizes deep listening to ourselves as well as others. And it reveals the depth of our own compassion, hopefully. <laughs> um, and it has four steps or pillars to it. And those are observations, feelings, needs, and requests. And I think it's an amazing book to read. I, I literally devour books, so I'm going to encourage you to read anything and everything you can get your hands on, even if you don't agree with something. But even Marshall Rosenberg himself would tell you that nonviolent communication, as he wrote about it, is not based on anything new. It's actually based on historical principles of nonviolence and compassion that can be learned in almost any setting, not just in one book and not just in one NVC training. And that's something I've always tried to like gently mention when someone's like practically yelling at me, like, have you done NVC training? 
And I'm like, calm down. Um, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, like there's other ways to do this. It's not just one type of training. He just rebranded it, but it's seen in many areas of our lives. So now the polar opposite, but equally, if not more so powerful book that I always recommend that people read is one by Robert Greene, and it's called The 48 Laws of Power. And I always recommend this book to people, and almost no one reads it because it's a huge book. Uh, it's very dense. But in it, he discusses tactical maneuvers in professional and personal dynamics. The book offers such incredible strategies for dominance and manipulation that it's actually banned in many prisons, which is an interesting and fun fact. But I happen to like the book, and I found that it offered a really wraparound perspective as to why, when, and how people make decisions while also offering options that I had never considered. And it's less about doing what the book says to the T and more about opening yourself up to new possibilities in thinking and in action. Because at the end of the day, I, I believe that we're actually all pretty rigid and we don't realize it. And this is a good way to keep yourself sort of emotionally and intellectually limber to see what are the other options that I could use in any given situation. So now the third book and the one that I really wanted to mention is a book that I've read so many times and it's called Endurance and it's written by Alfred Lansing and it's a collection of journal entries from the crew on the ship, The Endurance, which was on a trans-Arctic mission in 1914 and led by the explorer, Ernest Shackleton. So right there, you're probably wondering why and how this has anything to do with conflict resolution and how would this book apply to your own life and why on earth did I relate to it so much? Well, this book highlights powerful leadership and conflict resolution skills under the most harrowing and life-threatening conditions possible. They've actually tried to recreate the journey that this man went on with his crew, and no one has been able to do it since. And not a single crew member died, which when you read the book, it almost seems impossible. But at every turn, the leader, Ernest Shackleton, makes snap decisions that ensure the safety of his crew. And some of those decisions don't make any sense when you first read the book, but you ultimately understand that he was making long game, long-term decisions with short-term safety measures woven in. And I recommend this book for everyone, but if you are in a leadership position in any area of your life, whether that's work or family, it's actually a life changer. And the reason I mention those books and I'm actually doing this entire episode is because so often the discussion surrounding conflict resolution is interesting because we begin by talking about conflict resolution in regard to other people, as in us against the world. But my focus and what's always interested me is the conflict resolution within ourselves. Because maybe the way that we resolve conflict with ourselves and our inner worlds is parallel to how we navigate conflict in our outer worlds and with other people. And maybe that is the key to unlocking a new way of doing things. But if we're constantly focused on what someone else is doing and how I can either manipulate or meet or dominate them, I'm never going to take the focus and put it on me and see, like, what am I doing? What am I bringing to the situation? How can I change to get a different outcome? 
And so whenever I'm doing this with myself, I have to ask myself some questions. How willing am I to cut myself some slack? And how often am I unwilling to do the same for others? Is there a correlation? How good am I at communicating between my body, my mind, and my spirit? Or my wants and my needs? And how good am I at communicating with other people or picking up on their discomfort, you know, honoring their boundaries or being aware of their subtle cues? How willing am I to identify my part in things without being a hero, a perpetrator, a victim, or a martyr? And am I able to establish relationships with other people without assigning them these roles as well? And another question is, what do we do? What are we hardwired to do with the parts of ourselves that we will not forgive? The parts of ourselves that we don't want to communicate with and the parts that we just will not accept. And how does that programming and that reactivity show up in our interactions with other people? How are we resolving the conflict between how we feel in our bodies and what we see in the mirror? How are we showing up to the conflict between how we really feel about people and what we're willing to say with our words or show them with our actions? Is there a huge disparity there? And how are we navigating the conflict between our feelings of low self-worth and low self-esteem and our imposter syndrome that I talked about last week and our capacity or our potential? Are we constantly at war with those parts of ourselves? You know, it's almost easier to write a whole episode just with scripts for de-escalating conflict the way that you would write out a script for a sales call. But when we look at conflict resolution only from the angle of me versus you, we overlook the foundation of conflict in our own lives, which is actually us versus ourselves. And so I encourage you to start there and maybe even rewind this a few times and listen to some of those questions that I asked or dive into the practice of a personal inventory. You don't have to be in a 12-step program to give it a shot and gain some insight. You can just Google AA fourth step inventory and start the work of rewriting your own story of distorted perception. Because conflict resolution doesn't have to be about manipulating ourselves or another person in order to get the outcome that we want. That's your only goal. You know, I just mentioned a few books that would get you there with skill and mastery. But if we're open to not knowing how the story ends, or open to developing better coping skills and learning about de-escalating with ourselves and reconciling with ourselves first, we'll have a template for doing that with the whole outside world. And de-escalation is one of those skills that it actually takes time and practice to become energetically fluent in it. But I can break down some of the steps that I use in order to de-escalate situations. And the first thing I do is I move the discussion or interaction into a private area. And again, only if it's safe for me to do so. There's some outlier situations where that's really not wise. But if you do feel safe with this other person, even if you are in an altercation, it's best to do that because people change their behavior when they feel that they're being watched. So privacy allows them to be more present for the interaction between you and them 
versus the reaction from a crowd. Then, quickly evaluate our own personal space. What's our tone? What's our body language? You know, where are we standing? Don't block an exit. Give people room. And I usually give about three feet between me and the other person. And I instantly rein in my tone. Because in these situations, people will hear us better without heightened emotions. Because we have no idea what they assign to these emotions based on their own previous experience. So if I want to get my message across with depth and weight, it's actually much better for me if I'm calm as I do so. And our body language is probably what people pick up on first. I mean, we're all animals, right? Walking around in clothing. But people notice things even if they don't notice things. And so we have to be aware of this and find a neutral stance that's not combative. The next step is being empathetic and non-judgmental and making space for the other person's thoughts and feelings without entering into any kind of space of evaluating them or judging them or breaking them down and pointing out why they're wrong. we avoid doing this and we avoid overreacting by separating our empathy up a bit. You know, we empathize with the feelings, but not the irrational or acting out behaviors or words. So I can empathize with whatever's coming up for you, but how you're reacting to them, I actually don't have to make space for. And we can do this and help the other person do this by focusing on the thoughts that are behind their feelings while also understanding that many people, us included, have trouble identifying how we feel about what's happening to us. We all have trouble with that. <laughs> you know, No matter how evolved you are, there's always a moment when you're like, I have no idea why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling, but I definitely know you are wrong. So ways that we can make space for this in a dialogue while we're in conflict is saying, you know, help me understand what you need. What has helped you in the past when you've been in similar situations? Tell me if I have this right, and then sort of repeat your understanding of the situation to make sure that you have heard them correctly. Because just as they might be miscommunicating, you know, listening is a big part of communication, and we might be messing up that part of it. And all of those things let the other person know that you are working with them in this discussion, not against them. And the next thing I like to keep in mind is not engaging in power struggles or any kind of antagonizing or polarizing questions, because I think a lot of us are programmed to do that. We're we're programmed to bait other people and to get a reaction and then to say, see, you know, you're overreacting. I wasn't the one wrong. You're the one who's wrong. And we can move beyond someone's antagonizing question without ignoring them as a person or minimizing their core needs. And then we can choose to set boundaries that feel safe for us in the conversation. And we can do that by inviting the other person to co-create those boundaries with us and say something along the lines of, it's important for you to be calm in order for us to be able to talk. How can that be accomplished? And the part of de-escalation that I find to be really powerful and one that I tend to introduce a lot is allowing for silence and decision-making. 
Because when we are in tense situations, we feel compelled to fill the void. You know, whoever's loudest is right. Whoever's most aggressive is right. You know, that person wins. But silence is a powerful tool because it allows us and the other person to reflect on what is actually happening and to move into a space of curious discomfort instead of fight or flight discomfort that comes with sparring. You know, there's a core question that I bring into all the work that I do and I have for a really long time, and it's especially present and important for me to ask when I'm in conflict with someone. And I've mentioned it in this podcast before because I do use it so often. And that question is, what do I need to know about you as a person in order to give you the best care possible? And in a conflict resolution situation, that question can shift into, what do I need to know about you as a person in order for you to walk away from this situation feeling seen, respected, and heard? And it kind of goes without saying, but I think I'm actually going to say it anyway, that all of these steps and interventions are only useful if we actually want to resolve conflict. And we have to be honest with ourselves because the real question is, Do I want to be right or do I want to be in right relationship with myself and others? Because those are very different things. Do I want to win or dominate or feel justified or do I want serenity? Am I willing to sacrifice this relationship and destroy it or do I want to create room for it to grow and evolve? And I probably sound like an elementary school teacher, but I actually always like to use the acronym THINK before I speak. And you'd be surprised how often I actually do run through this before I open my mouth. Because it's sort of a spot check inventory where I ask myself, is what I am about to say true, helpful, inspiring, necessary, or kind? You know, some of us were brought up to believe or we had experiences that reinforced a belief that by leading with compassion, patience, or empathy, we would be run over by the whole world. And I absolutely thought that for most of my life. And it's been a challenge to release the pressure valves a bit and trust that I won't actually get run over. And I always had this image of myself walking up to like a knife fight holding a bunch of flowers instead of a weapon as I'm trying to do this work and develop a deeper skill set and tool bag of emotional tools. And I would always think, like, how would I ever survive? I mean, the world is a little harsh with me. Um, And I think that the word survive is key because when we look at every situation as a fight for survival, We make decisions and take actions that we would only allow ourselves to do under the threat of certain death. So if I'm constantly in fight or flight, the rules change, right? I mean, I have to do whatever I have to do to get out of a situation. And we can easily slip into a whole lifetime of believing that everything is fight or flight and that we have to constantly exist in survival mode where we excuse all of our behavior. But then we can also flip the switch and commit to a life where we focus on thriving instead of surviving. And then we have a new set of rules because surviving is short-term thinking and a state of thriving is long game. 
when we thrive, we build and we respect our relationships beyond just the obvious return on investment. And a way to do that is to walk into every situation and already know what you are bringing to the table, no matter what anyone else brings. And we do this by showing up for what is with the emotionally sober tools that we have versus acting out based on what we believe has happened. A friend of mine once told me that if the only tool I have in my emotional toolkit is a hammer, then everything in my life is going to start to look like a nail. And that resonated with me because I honestly believe that the more I've developed my toolkit, the more options I have for addressing situations in a way that is mutually beneficial. And that's very important in conflict resolution. Hammering everything and everyone into the ground is a form of self-sabotage, and it's a great way to isolate and alienate yourself under the guise of self-protection. I don't want that. I know that when I walk into a situation, you will not get me to say something that I would never say. You will not get me to do something that I would never do. And that's a really strong foundation in conflict resolution. So again, that's our invitation to do an inventory and say, like, what boundaries have I crossed that I would never want to cross in these situations? And what can I do about it? So with this episode, I don't think I've solved any of the world's problems, but maybe just revealed some options for all of us to take a look at our own behavior when it comes to conflict resolution and be open to the possibility that the way we've been doing things may not be the most optimal way to do it. Hopefully. (laughs) So the name of this podcast is Love Letters and Mixtapes, and the inspiration for that was a desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. And if I was going to write a love letter to my younger self about conflict resolution, it would probably go something like this. When we focus on the person we see in the mirror, when we learn all the tips and tricks and buttons to push and familiarize ourselves with the tools we have available to us for dealing with ourselves, we can show up with humility in all of our interactions with others. Because if we are in right relationship with ourselves, then we already have a roadmap in our hands for getting into right relationship with other people. And all we have to do is put one foot in front of the other and continue to do the next right thing. We bring ourselves into every single situation and relationship and conversation and conflict. And we need to be accountable to ourselves and responsible for ourselves in all of these interactions. It may sound harsh, but it comes from a place of love. And our love stories with ourselves are the greatest love stories of our entire lives. We can never run away from ourselves. We can never abandon ourselves, no matter how hard we try. Moving through conflict with ourselves, being willing to make amends with ourselves, being willing to look at ourselves and say, I'm sorry, I hurt you. Here's how I'm going to learn how to not repeat that mistake, is the best love letter we could ever write. And it's good practice for loving, or at the very least, not hurting other people. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. Check out this week's playlist on my personal Spotify account. And join me on Instagram at loveletters and mixtapes. If you enjoy this episode, please consider donating to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.